149. Zayn. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me with, without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, and I find comfort in Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are in the theme of my song wherever I am. In the night I remember your name, O Lord. Keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Good job. All right. Now let's see. We got a couple of prayer requests. Susan emailed her Aunt June is 87 and declining, and she needs Jesus. So she's witness to her. No response yet over the years. So we're waiting for that to happen, and we'll pray about that. And then Mark and Becky are concerned one about job and one about health stresses. And then Paul is. Home. Paul from uh, the musician that was here. Yes. He's home. He's Mr. back Luther. from the hospital. Yes, back from the hospital. I can't read my own handwriting, so I'm trying to decipher it. He's back from the hospital. He had everything taken care of. He's doing well, and he thanks everybody for the prayers over the past week or two. And uh, Blake needs prayer. He's not here, obviously. He's uh, been really struggling. He needs, if anybody knows, a Christian doctor that treats pain and back and hip and neck problems he could use it and monday he has mris to see if they can figure out why he's been in so much pain and so we'll keep him a prayer about that and then we might as well pray first and then we'll read this heavenly father we do thank you for the chance to come to you and to pray for these things and others that have been brought forward and others that are on the hearts of people that are here or that may be watching and we would pray that you would search us out and Look into our needs, Lord, and hear and respond according to our, our appeals to you, but more in accordance with your wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, for the fellowship we have in this church. And it's just so wonderful to be able to share with people in the word of God, wherever they are, including in this building itself. And we appreciate that, Lord. And we appreciate those that are so uh, interested in knowing your precious word. And so we would pray that we would handle it properly. And if there's something that I say which is not correct, that that would be brought to our attention or at least to the attention of those who are listening so that they wouldn't be led astray. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for the chance to meet here and we just commit this time to you and your precious word. And we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How we doing there, Rick? Just in time. Rick. 30 more seconds and you would have gotten a wet noodle. Let's see here. March 21st, I once was lost, but now I'm found. John Newton, the son of a sea captain, was born in London in 1725. When he was six, he lost his mother. But before she died, she prayed that he would become a minister. Choosing another path, Newton went to sea with his father at age 11. After an unsuccessful stint in the Royal Navy, he went to work for a slave trader. As things went from bad to worse in his life, he hit bottom as the slave of a white as yeah, as the slave of a white slave trader's black mistress on one of the Planten Islands off the Sierra Leone coast. That whole sentence doesn't work. No, doesn't, doesn't, uh, the sentence The slave is, of a slave. I understand, but the sentence doesn't, it's not coherent. Anyway, for two long years, he was hungry and destitute. Then in 1747, he began working once more on a slave ship. 
In March 1748, Newton had an experience that changed him forever. He wrote in his journal, among the few books we had on board, one was Stanhope's Thomas A. Kempis. I carefully took it up, as I had often done before, to pass away the time, but I still read it with the same indifference as if it was entirely a romance. However, while I was reading this time, an involuntary suggestion arose in my mind. What if these things should be true? He went to bed that night, but was awakened by a fierce storm. Within a few minutes, the ship was a virtual wreck, filling with water. Working frantically, the crew finally plugged the leaks. In his exhaustion, Newton heard himself say to the captain, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. Newton was instantly taken aback by his own words. This was the first time he had desired God's mercy in years. Then the thought went through his mind, What mercy can there be for me? The next day, March 21st of 1748, the storm continued. Newton was summoned to the helm where he had time to reflect. He sadly concluded that there had never been a sinner as wicked as he and that his sins were too great and too many to be forgiven. His journal records the deliverance from the storm and his spiritual deliverance as well. This is a day much to be remembered by me and I have never suffered it to pass wholly unnoticed since the year 1748. On that day, the Lord sent me from on high and delivered me out of the deep waters. Later, he wrote, I stood in need of an almighty savior and such a one I found described in the New Testament. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness and I had taken up some right notions, was seriously disposed and seriously touched with a sense of the undeserved mercy I had received. In being brought safe through so many dangers, Although he continued sailing and working in the slave trade for a time, he studied the Bible, prayed, read Christian books, and finally left the sea behind. In 1764, at age 39, John Newton became a new life, began a new life as a minister in the Church of England, later writing his autobiographical hymn, Amazing Grace. Throughout his life, he stopped to thank God on the anniversary of the conversion. The last entry in his journal was written on March 21st of 1805, the anniversary of his deliverance. He said, not well able to write, but I endeavored to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. And they say, often God will use danger or tragedy to get our attention. Has that ever been your experience? If so, did the experience produce a permanent result similar to John Newton's? And they cite Acts 16. Suddenly there was a great earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself, but Paul shouted to him, don't do it, we are all here. Trembling with fear, the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Wonderful stuff. We're in Acts, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 today. Wherever you desire to start us. Let's start at 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is official. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, for the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord, the Lord of the body. 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead 
he will rise us raise us also okay this one adds in by his power so it says and god both raised up the lord and but they said that at the beginning of the verse didn't they okay that's what it is all right so uh, it says the same thing they just reversed it and you know they they've got to change these things around so that they don't plagiarize there's only so many ways you can translate a verse in one language and they have to think of new and inventive ways of doing it so instead of saying uh and god both raised up then they say well god by his power raised up and then the power comes at the end in the other one whatever anyway that's why you'll see those variations and some of them are very close but they'll just change one word or something yeah they're shuffling the deck because uh there are countless countless translations out there i mean you look at the number of them it is amazing and uh none of them are all perfectly uh you know you you gotta you've got to read different translations to make sure you get the sense of it and uh, the more you study the original language which is not necessary you know people will hold that over people and they'll say you know well you don't know the originals and so blah 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 that's not necessary but it is a good thing to be able to know how to refer to the originals and to uh, understand a little bit of it if everybody took a single just a you know uh course one of biblical hebrew and a course one of biblical greek you they say when you go through that in college you know just enough to be dangerous you don't want to use it for doctrine you don't want to use it for training other people but at least you'll have a sense of how to refer to things and how the mechanics of the language work and so uh you know just my thought on that and 614 incomplete and absolute support that sexual immorality is not to be condoned paul now ties his discussion in with the resurrection of christ it is paul's way of saying thank in the last verse he said now the body is not for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body to make this so obvious that anyone should see the importance of the matter he next says and god both raised up the lord and will also raise us up by his power he has tied our lives in with the perfect sinless son of god because he was found without sin is sexual immorality sin absolutely all through the bible from beginning to end i'll stop right there before i go on is that you know there are people on uh facebook there are people on uh vimeo people on youtube that are being banned because of their stand on uh, against homosexuality okay and somebody could report me because i bring up homosexuality and i say the bible doesn't allow right they're being banned i read one just this morning okay the bible does not pick on homosexuality it picks on sexual sin homosexuality is one of the sexual sins okay fornication we could go on and on with the sexual sins anything outside of the bonds of marriage is considered wrong so for them to ban you because you've spoken against homosexuality is taking unless they're just focusing on that and saying that's and everything else is okay which i don't know a christian that would do that because it would be insane but they are they are purposefully doing these things against with their set agenda saying that we have a set agenda which is incorrect if you teach the bible properly you will speak against all sexual sin why because we are as christians to be like the lord we're to be holy okay you can't be holy if you are doing what the lord would not condone so here we go he was found without sin he was raised to life death has no power over him it was not possible that he should be held by it that's acts 2 24. this is the basis on which he was raised if sin were found in him he would not never have been qualified for the resurrection everybody understand that the only reason why christ came out of the grave is because he was sinless the reason why he went into the grave was because we are sinners 
There's a giant difference between the two. He took our sins upon himself, and yet in death it was as if Teflon. The death, the sin on him in death could not be transferred to him except to be carried away for us. But he had no sin of his own. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But when he came out of that grave, it was because of his sinless perfection. Okay, If sin were found in him, he would not have been qualified for the resurrection. And it, too, is the only basis for our resurrection. There would be no resurrection if he had sinned. It is not because we are sinless in and of ourselves, but because we are sinless in Christ. People ask, you know, well, can I lose my salvation over this? Or can I lose my salvation over that? And is God counting sins? You know, if I do this, is God counting that as a sin? And the answer is always no. If you are in Christ, God is not imputing your sin to you. He's not counting your sins against you, okay? That doesn't mean that you are doing everything right. That means that you are covered in Christ's perfection. You will be judged for the wrong things you do, not for condemnation, but for rewards and losses. It is not because we are sinless in and of ourselves, but because we are sinless in Christ. That means right now. That means we are right now connected to him. So much for a loss of salvation. As this is true, then engaging in sexual immorality among believers is to abuse our granted position and to hold in contempt that which is sacred, the only tie that we have for our granting of eternal life. We're abusing our tie to Christ by doing these things. Paul will continue with this thought in the coming verses. But 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14 should be enough to wake up any sleeper and open their eyes to the truth that sexual immorality, and I don't care what kind it is, it is wrong. It is not to be engaged in. It is not to be tolerated. Did the person that get kicked, that got kicked out of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, was he engaged in homosexuality? No, absolutely not. But they kicked him out. There's no difference between him and somebody doing something according to homosexuality. It is all sexual sin. We have to speak against it. For them to ban you from YouTube or from video, Vimeo, or from Facebook for those things is to take a biased stand. They are the biased ones, not the Christians, because we are to be consistent in our addressing the sexual immorality issue. Okay, life application. We are in Christ. We are united to him and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Is it a light thing that we would misuse, so misuse our position in him that we would excuse voluntary sin? May it never be so. 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Okay, did he pick on any other sins? Go ahead. Never. Never, he says. This one says certainly not. All right. He didn't pick on any other sexual sins. They're all lumped in together. He's just making a point with a, a prostitute, okay? He makes his other points on other types of sexual sins elsewhere. In this case, he's chosen a prostitute. Do you not know is Paul's rhetorical way of saying you should certainly know. It is an obvious truth that anyone who is called on Christ should know what he will now state. It shouldn't take any additional reflection or consideration. He is relaying now a thought based on his previous statement of verse 14, which said, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. If God will raise us up by his power because of the work of Christ, then we must be members of Christ. 
It should be a self-evident fact to the believer. And because it is, or should be, he asks another rhetorical question. Shall I then take the members of Christ, meaning my members because I am united to Christ, right? And make them members of a harlot. The question begs a negative response. It begs a negative response. Harlotry has no place within Christianity and is used by Paul as an all-encompassing term for any sexual immorality. The Bible only allows one type of sex, and that is between a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage. Okay, I understand they have concubines in the Old Testament. Paul never addresses that in the New. He's from the Hebrew Society, which allowed those things. A concubine is considered the property of the man. She's, it's the same issue. So I'm not going to bring that up now other than to mention it in that, that sense. Okay, when he says that, I talked to somebody about this yesterday, when he says that an elder or a deacon is to be the husband of but one wife, that's not speaking about divorce. That's not speaking about his wife dying and getting remarried. It's speaking about having more than one wife. He's going out to the Gentile people of the world, and some of those nations have polygamy. Even today, they have it in some nations around the world, and they can be Christians. There's nothing that forbids it, but it forbids them from uniting as an elder or a deacon in the body if they have more than one wife. That is forbidden. But that is what that issue is speaking of specifically there. Okay, won't go any deeper than that, but it. Uh, let's see here. Um, in the bonds of marriage, anything else is a perversion of this. A harlot not only engages in sex with many members, but she does so for pay. And this was commonly connected to religious rites. And because of this, Paul uses harlotry as the premier example of sexual immorality. You've all heard of the temple prostitutes. They're mentioned in the Old Testament. The Kedeshim, they're mentioned in the New Testament. You'll find these things, okay? By engaging in sex with a harlot, we are uniting with that we are uniting that which is sacred and set apart to God with that which is profane and opposed to God. As Ellicott notes, the double act of taking them away from their glorious union with Christ and joining them to a base body is implied in the Greek. It is a double slap in the face of that which is upright and acceptable for the Christian. Life application. Although Paul is speaking of sexual immorality, we should consider every action we take in life in conjunction with our spiritual connection to Christ. David in the psalm says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Isn't this the right, noble, and honorable path to follow in all things? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and not on that which is base and inglorious. Somebody emailed me about kind of that thing today, and I said, listen, everything that we have that we allow into our eyes that isn't devoted to the Lord is either neutral or it is unproductive. But if you take it from the sense of it being neutral, you're not focusing on the Lord, then even that's unproductive. Okay. The real productivity in life comes from moving forward always towards Christ, keeping your eye on him. But you watch movies that have things in there you shouldn't be watching. You're the only one that's assimilating that in your mind, and it's going to become a part of who you are. It's very hard not to in this world when you turn on the TV, not see something that is offensive. I mean, even going back to the old James Bond movies, there's always something that comes up, some innuendo or something. But there's a point where you can cut yourself off entirely from the world. And Paul used that example earlier. He says, you know, I'm not talking about not associating with the sexual immorality, the sexual moral and the blah, 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 blah of this world. He's saying if anybody is named a brother and does those things, don't. So obviously, if you're hanging around with people that are of the world and they're doing things like that, you're assimilating into your head. But it doesn't say you can't be around those people. 
but you're not to be around brothers that claim that they're Christians and yet do these things. Okay. Uh, yeah, 616. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Where is that recorded? Uh, that is Genesis. That's where, Genesis? Yeah, three. Three, yeah. thank you. Okay. So far, Paul has argued against sexual immorality from several different perspectives. Now in verse 616, he reaches back to the very first account of man on earth from Genesis 2. Okay, God intended for man to have a partner and he intended for them to be united in a way which was unique to humanity. As it says in Genesis 2, after naming all the animals God created, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so God created woman for the man. In their union, the two shall become one flesh. Paul has just said to those in Corinth, and thus to us, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. His words are built, his, yes, his words are built upon the thought that we are in Christ. Therefore, when we unite in an immoral way, we are defiling the very bond in which we exist by bringing it into an act which is wholly ungodly and immoral. Such is the case when a man unites with a harlot. Considering this, how reprehensible are such acts in any other form? Homosexuality, bestiality, and so on. God has ordained the parameters of sex, and he has written it on our hearts. To attempt to justify sexual sin in any way is to suppress, Paul uses the term, suppress the knowledge that God has given us. Paul lays this out in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. There can be no excuse for such acts, and yet they are off actually Romans chapter 1, and it goes from 1 all the way down to the end of the chapter. I'm just, anyway, for such acts, and yet they are often what seem to define us as humans. Our fallen, corrupt nature makes us yearn for the profane and the perverse. The remedy is Jesus. We are to fix our eyes and our thoughts on him, and we are to be obedient to the word that he has given. Life application, going quick today. Sexual sins are no less consuming of our minds and thoughts than drug or alcohol addictions. They can fill us with great anguish and turmoil, and this leaves us with real choices just as with other addictions. We can hold on to Christ, being obedient to his word, or we can allow ourselves to let the flesh take over. Hold firm to the Lord. If you are in him, then he will strengthen you for the battle you face. But you have to be willing to ask him to do that. If you're in him, he will do it. Okay, go ahead. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him, spirit. Okay. We are shown that the bond between a man and a woman who are united in marriage is likened to our union with Christ. Paul says in the previous verse that the two become one flesh. In a similar manner, but on a spiritual level, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The words with him are inserted for clarity, but the Greek actually says one spirit is. There is a spiritual connection to each believer that is realized when they receive Jesus Christ as Lord. In this verse, there is not only the establishment of the concept of oneness in spirit, but the truth that because we are one in spirit, our actions now truly affect that bond. This is why Paul is so adamant about our rejection of sexual immorality. To engage in perverse acts after being saved is to do so when united to Christ. 
Paul is asking them to seriously think this through from the eternal perspective, as with all sin and with, with all things that we do right. Are we doing it because we're, you know, trying to get somebody's favor? Are we trying to look good in the church? Or, or are we doing it because we want to please the Lord? Just because we're doing something right doesn't mean we're doing it with the right motives. We're to look at everything from the eternal perspective and say, I'm doing this because I want to please the Lord. All right. But there is also one other point of doctrine, which is implicitly upheld by this verse. The doctrine of, once again, eternal salvation. If we are joined to the Lord in this way, then it becomes apparent that our salvation must be eternal. If we engage in a perverse act such as adultery, and it is something that affects our, un our union with Christ, then it must be that the union with Christ is maintained despite the fault. Otherwise, Paul would have noted as a warning that the bond would be severed, and he never does that anywhere in his writings, ever. However, nowhere is that concept even hinted at. Thank God for what Jesus has done. We continue to be saved despite ourselves. In his ever-consistent way of describing our union with Christ, we see that Paul speaks of it elsewhere. Two examples, I'll read you one from Galatians chapter 2. Where he says this, Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then again in Galatians 3, verse 17, he says, And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So there you go. There's some verses that speak about us being in Christ, the, the covenant being in Christ, etc. Okay, life application. We are one with the Lord in spirit. He lives in us, and we have put him on as our garment of righteousness. Let us attempt to always live up to that glorious position. He is holy, and so let us act in holiness as well. It's not an Old Testament precept. As I said in the sermon, I think it was last week, maybe it's the one coming this week. It, being in Christ doesn't demand that we're, or it doesn't say that we're to be less holy. It actually demands that we are to be more holy because he is residing in, in us. It's not that we're living among the Lord and he's in a tabernacle in the middle of the people or in a temple in the middle of the nation. It's that he is living in us. It demands a greater state of holiness, not a lesser state. Okay, but we'll go back there really quickly anyway, just to see what the Old Testament said. Leviticus, where am I going, Burke? 11. And let's see if I can find it. Is that what I'm looking for? Leviticus 11. Uh, oh, I thought it was. What's that? I'm looking for the one that says, yeah, be ye holy for I'm holy. Where is that? I thought it was Leviticus 11, but it's not. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's something 11. I know it is. I know there's an 11 in there. Anyway, that's what it says. You find it. We'll go on while you're looking because I know it's 1144. Let me go back there again. I, I didn't go through the whole thing. I was just thinking 11 and I'd see it really quickly, but I'm going to look anyway. Leviticus, if it's not there, I'm going to have to go back to remedial Bible school. 1144? Oh, good. Read it loud. For I am the Lord your God. Concentrate yourself, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. Woohoo! There you go. All right. Thank you, Burke. Best okay. Day of your life. The what? Best day, of your Best day of my life. 
Okay. Exodus 3113 has this very. Similar. Yes, it does. Read it. Hold on. 3113. 3113. Oh. Yeah. Exodus 3113. Oh, you it's went gone. too far. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. 13? Yeah. Uh, no, it doesn't say be ye holy. Well, it says something somewhere in Exodus as well. That's okay. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Um, we are, I, I did read the life application, mm -hmm. didn't I? Yes, with Christ, I too have been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but he. When I called on him, at that moment I died. And the life I now live is one in him, eternally. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Help me, Lord, in your steps always to trod and to reflect in you a life which is pure and holy. For surely into Christ I was baptized, and in him is eternal life realized. 618. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Okay. All right. Paul's words concerning sexual immorality now result in a direct command. Flee it. No stronger words could be uttered. They are direct and specific based on what he has already said and what he will say in the coming verses. This is something of the highest significance and importance. Where did he get an example for that from? Flee sexual immorality. Where did he get an example of that from? Probably Joseph. Joseph, Potiphar's wife. Very good. And he gives the reason why when he says that every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. This is a tie directly back to what he said in the previous verse. We are united to Christ and we are one with him in spirit. Therefore, by sinning against our own body, we are sinning against him directly. The concept of body here is inclusive of the entire man, not merely the flesh, as he pointed out in his note about foods earlier. Sexual sin is a direct sin against Jesus Christ because believers are in Jesus Christ. Let us consider this carefully as we conduct our lives. It has been said that there is safety in numbers, but in the case of sexual immorality, there is greater safety in running away. This is what Joseph did when he was confronted by Potiphar's wife. He knew that involvement with her was wrong, and that was, and that was at a time before the giving of the law. We have the lessons of the, of the time of the law, and we have the New Testament to guide us since passing of the law. How can we believe we will escape judgment if we are caught up in sexual immorality? Fleeing from such sin in this manner is imperative, and it calls to mind James' words in his epistle. In James 4, 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are to resist the devil flee from sin, and submit to God. If we do these things, we will be sound in our faith and practice, and we will stand approved in our conduct. Life application, thoughts lead to action, and therefore we should always endeavor to control our thoughts concerning sinful practices. The Bible asks us rather to fix our thoughts on Jesus, Hebrews 3.1. By doing so, we will keep from getting sideswiped by the devil and finding ourselves in an unhappy position. 19. It's always interesting. It's when you're given a temptation, there's always a path 
Always. Always. There's always a you path think out. think back on anything you've ever done. That's and right. There was a path right there. You... And you either took it or you didn't. That's, That's right. absolutely right. Because he says in his word, he'll give you that. There's always an... 1013 says that. 1013. Exodus 1013? No, no, no. Corinthians 1013 about that. There's a way of escape. Oh, gotcha. No temptation taking you. This other, though, the... Three, the uh, 3113. 3113. Yeah. In, in the NIV, it says, for I am holy. Okay, there it, it is. It doesn't read that way. I, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Who makes you. Gotcha. Okay. And then you said that was 1013. We're not there yet. We'll be there in another week or so. Let's see here. 1013. Oh, yeah. No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, there it is, will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Okay, good job. 19. I'm glad I got you guys here because, I mean, all I say guys in the masculine, but it pertains to like the, the Greek and the too. Hebrew, the masculine pertains to the whole congregation. You guys keep me on my toes. Go ahead. Do you not know that you are a sin? No. Okay, let's start all over. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Do you, uh, you are not your own. You are not your own. Verse six nineteen. Or do you not know is intended to be taken as a positive affirmation, such as certainly you must know. It is a rhetorical question designed to get the letter's recipients, and thus us, because we are receiving the letter, to think this issue through clearly. And the issue he is speaking of is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Where is that recorded that the Holy Spirit is in you? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believe, you receive, and it is a done deal. Okay, this is then another case raised by Paul why we should not be engaged in sin and impurity. There are three general uses for the term temple in the Bible, which we need to understand. The first is the temple. Earlier before the temple was built, it was the movable tabernacle, but it's the same idea that is in Jerusalem. This was the place of worship for the covenant people, and it showed that God was among them. The second is found in the Gospels, and it is speaking of the Lord's physical body. Now, in the epistles, it refers to the believer in Christ who is sanctified by the sealing and thus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As a substantiation of this view, we can refer to, refer to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says this. Verse 16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are all the temple of God. We are being built into a spiritual temple, Paul says elsewhere. We are the temple of God. Well, okay. That's why the Jews got all upset. He said, destroy this temple. temple. I'll raise it that's up right. The word is naos. It means. Said, well, you can't do that. This Long, 49 years or something it was yeah 40 46 and then three what was it comes out to 49 uh anyway yeah that's correct so uh uh yeah that's absolutely right he said destroy this temple and i'll rebuild it and they said well it took him that long to build and in three days wasn't speaking at all about the temple he was speaking about himself he uses the same word so very good uh the holy spirit whom you have from God, Paul says, is he who seals us. Once again, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And thus he is our guarantee. He indwells us from the moment we believe. 
And as much as he is a guarantee, the spirit is also a sign of, begins with O, ends with nourship. Ownership. ownership. Very good. He is a sign of ownership. We have been purchased and we are owned by God. This is why Paul now declares, and you are not your own. He owns us. We belong to that which we are a slave to. We were once owned by the devil because we were slaves to sin. John 8, 34, Romans chapter 6. However, through the blood of Christ, it's also 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, I believe. Let me go there really quick. Just here, let's see, that Peter or John. I remember when the devil was brand new, and now it's fallen to pieces. 3, 8, yes, he who sins of, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Clue in to people who take that verse and say, see, you're sinning, you must be of the devil. If you are in Christ, God is not imputing sins to you, or he's not imputing trespasses to you or counting your sins against you. Therefore, that verse does not apply to somebody who is in Christ. It is saying that anybody in this world that is not in Christ is owned of the devil. It's another of several confirmations of that in Scripture. Okay, so um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, what verse are we doing? I lost my place here. So we're still on 19. Thank you very much. There we are. Okay, yes, uh, I've said uh, Romans 8.34 and uh, John 8.34 and Romans 6. However, through the blood of Christ, we are redeemed and we are now slaves of God. If we are slaves of God, then we belong to him. If we belong to him, then we are bound under him to be obedient to him. We cannot and we dare not assume that we have license to sin. And when I say sin, I'm talking about sinning. It's not being imputed to you, but you are still committing the act of sin, okay? You will lose rewards for it. Such a thought is corrupt. It is wicked. It defies the very authority of our master over us. In a human master-to-slave relationship, disobedience would be considered intolerable. Why should we think it is different with God? But this is the constant theme of those who want to have their foot in both worlds. On one hand, they claim freedom from sin in Christ, and on the other, they claim freedom to sin because of Christ. It is both illogical and perverse. Everybody got that? There's free grace. That means you receive God's grace freely, but that is not free grace, meaning license. You are not given license to sin, okay? It's perverse. Life application. Go to work today. Who here is still employed? Okay, there's a couple of. I know I'm employed. Thank you, Lord. Um, actually, I got several <laughs> employers, you know, uh, anyway, but uh, we'll go with the big one. Thank you, Lord. Um, but go to work today and tell your boss that you will no longer adhere to his rules, guidelines, and authority. That's funny. Yeah, that is funny, isn't it? See how far that gets you and then consider how much less God appreciates such defiance because churches are filled with it. They're filled with it. This is the rule, guide, and authority for our walk with God. Just as you go to your work and he says you're going to take out the garbage every day before you leave and you're going to, you know, do this and you're going to do it's all set up in advance. They don't pull, usually pull any hand arounds on you and say you're hired for this and then put you over here unless it's a part of the, the employment where they can change your job on you. But for the most part, when you go in, you know what's expected of you. And that's what you do. And when you say, I'm not going to do it, you're out. Unless you work for the government, then you get a raise until they stop attempting to fire you. But that's the exception. It's not the rule. Anyway, 
This is how it works here. Tell your boss to do that and see how far you get with it, okay? Note, this is my final thought on my life application. Do not actually go to work to do today and do those things. I'm not telling you that's an example, okay? I don't want somebody saying my pastor told me to go say this. Please don't do that, okay? Somebody probably clicked off right after I finished that last sentence, and now he's going to go do it and blame me. Yes, go ahead. 513 of Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Right. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. There you go. You were called to freedom. Do not turn that into an opportunity for the flesh. Good job. That's exactly what we're talking about, too. But way too often in churches, that is the case. And the reason why is because this is not their standard. Church is a play thing. That's all it is. It's just something to go and associate and to get along with people. And I don't know why some people even bother going to church, but they do. All right. If you're not adhering to the word or at least trying to adhere to the word, all you're doing is exactly what I said there. You're disgracing your master. Okay. You're disgracing yourself before your master, actually. Verse 620. This sounds like a bond servant. A bond servant. That's absolutely right. A bond servant. And that's what Paul calls himself. And that's what we are. We are bond servants of Christ. You're, you're, everybody is a slave to something. Everybody is a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to your job or you're a slave to, well, you're always a slave to sin if you're not in Christ, but you're a slave to something and you can be a slave to several things at once. But the idea is to be a slave to Christ. Be his servant. And 20 plays right into it. You were bought at a price. Therefore, ah. honor God with your body. Hey, there you go. Hey, this is the last verse of the chapter. I know. And I say it. This is the last verse of chapter 6. And it is an exacting follow-up to Paul's previous words that said, you are not your own. We are not the possessor of our lives. Hang on a sec. I got to breathe. Ah, get stuck in there. I get air stuck right here and I can't go up or down with it. We are not the possessor of our lives, nor are we to be the deciders of our conduct. These now belong to the Lord. He has purchased us and he is our master. And his word is our instruction manual for conduct. We are entirely under his authority because we were bought at a price. Back in the days when they had slaves in America, they would go down and they'd put them on display and they would pay a price for them. That became their property. And guess what? This is not going to be a popular thing to say here, but there were white slaves in America. I know somebody descended from white slaves. He's raising his hand right now. And I also know that there are blacks up in Maryland and Connecticut that owned slaves. This was something that people did. It, it was not a racial thing other than the fact that most of them came from Africa. Because why? They were sold in Africa into slavery. Okay? That is how it worked. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say. People don't want to hear that. But that is the world that we lived in. All right? It is behind us, thankfully. All right? But there are parts of the world where this still goes on. They put people on sale, and that person becomes their property. And that is what happened to us. We are on sale. The devil bought us. Christ bought us back. He paid a price for us. Okay? You are not your own. We were bought at a price. But what was the price? What value was set on redeeming us from the power of the devil? The answer is found in Jesus' final words on the cross. In John 19.30, we read the word from which it is finished is translated. It is the word tetelestai. It indicates the completion of something, the rendering of a payment, and the final act of purchase. 
In his first epistle, Peter confirms that it was the cross of Christ which makes this possible. He said, um, yeah, Peter, did I say Paul there? No, I said Peter. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's right. The precious blood of Christ implies the death of Christ, the Lord. The death of the Lord occurred on Calvary's cross. Therefore, we were purchased through his horrifying death. Because such an enormous price was paid, you think about it. He created us. I, you know, I, I drive around and I get thoughts about God. And, you, you know, God can't be seen because he's everywhere. God is not visible to us. People say, I'm going to go up and talk to God the Father. They are misunderstanding the nature of God. God is everywhere. If you go down to the smallest atom, he's inside of there. Go down smaller. Go down smaller. He's, inside. he's working every single thing in this universe. Everything is working. Not one, whatever the smallest thing you can think of that is doing its thing right now, not one of them is doing it apart from God. He is everywhere tending to every single thing in this universe. And he allowed us to reject him. And you think about the size of some of the, I was looking at the scales, you know, once in a while, I'll look at these videos where it shows, starts out with an atom and it goes up and then eventually shows you the earth. And the atom is so small, you can't even compare. And then the earth is put next to the next biggest thing like Saturn or something. It's this little dinky thing. And then you got Jupiter, which makes Saturn look dinky. And you keep going up and they do this. It is so massive that the earth is literally nothing. It, it's insignificant. And yet God would step out of the eternal realm and he would unite with what he created and he would do what he did. I don't know what the value of man is. And David asked it and he said, what is the value of man? I have no idea, but there must be some value that he would do this. Now you think about that, that he was willing to do what he did for us. When all of that is under his control, every little thing and every big thing, everything working in harmony, and he was willing to do this. I don't understand it, but imagine letting him down through the things we do. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand here. The precious blood of Christ implies the death of the Lord. The death of the Lord occurred on Calvary's cross. Therefore, we were purchased through his horrifying death. And because such an enormous price was paid, how can we consider it acceptable to live in sin? Our master has given us his directions, and those directions never, never condone our right to sin. Never. It is unthinkable to even consider. And so Paul says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. As we are in Christ, and because he is sinless and also our Lord, how can we justify sinful actions? We belong to God and we are bound to his word as our rule and guide. Understanding this shows the immensity of the importance of knowing and adhering to his word. It's the only way that we can get this right. It is the only way on this entire planet to get this right is to know and to adhere to his word. There is no other way other than our general knowledge of God, which will always fail us. Always. And if we don't have the word in front of us, we will fail the word as well, because we're not reminding ourselves of it. I'm reading, uh, where am I in the morning reading? I'm reading um, uh, uh, Leviticus, I think it's 16 or something right now. 
That's, or I'm sorry, the evening reading and the morning reading. I am in the book of Amos. And as I'm reading them, I'm thinking, I preached on these verses in Leviticus, and I am not remembering what I said there. I want to go back and brush up. And then when I get to the book of Amos, I think, you know, I don't remember reading that verse before. I've read it countless times, and I don't remember it and how it fits into what I'm looking at right now in the book of Numbers. I mean, it is this giant, beautiful tapestry. And once you learn something, then something else starts to fit more and more and more. You're not going to know it unless you're reading it. And, oh, I've read the Bible. You heard people say that as if, okay, I've, I've paper. yeah, I, I, it's done. I don't need to read it anymore. Yeah, I'm going to go back and read the morning newspaper. There was an interesting article I want to brush up on. But the most important document on this planet, I've read that. Oh. You will be, as I am this whole week, seething about what I'm going to go over this week. Oh, gosh. I can't wait. What's the subject? Are you... uh, the emerging church. Oh, oh. Emergent Church. Jim is opening us on the Emergent Church this week. If you don't watch live, please watch his opening comments. Infuriating. Infuriating. All right. Understanding this shows the immense immensity of the importance of knowing and adhering to his word. If we are his, what would make us think that we should follow extra biblical church rules which conflict with scripture? a pastor's unbiblical teachings, or any other set of directions besides those given by God. Why would we do it? It is a simple issue to think through. If we work for a company, Dwyer Industries, for example, would it make sense to ignore the directions and policies of the company? Would we bring in the directives of another company or listen to a mid-level manager who was making up his own policies, which conflicted with the company's instruction manuals? Would anybody here do that? unless they wanted to get fired? Absolutely not. Nobody would do that. If this is the case with a work environment, how much more should we who are in a bondservant position under God be willing to submit to his guidance and instruction? Here it is. And yet how flagrantly we treat the Bible, dismissing those things which we find unsuitable to our tastes. Let us remember our state and stand fast on the counsel given in the Holy Bible. As Bengals Noman states, they are in error who think that God should be only internally or only externally worshipped. Our state is one which is wholly subservient to the Lord, body and spirit. We are to worship him with our minds, bodies, deeds, and actions. Everything. It's an all-encompassing thing. Life application, and we'll go on to the next verse. What is the value of the death of Jesus Christ to you? In what esteem do you hold his cross? Is it simply a ticket to heaven, but a chance for free living until then? Or do you cherish it right here and right now as a mournful necessity occasioned by our sin? Look to the cross, cling to the cross, and boast in the cross. In doing so, you will conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the cross. Go ahead. Now for the matters you wrote about it is good for a man not to marry. Okay, where are we here? Okay, got it. In these words, Paul is referring here directly to a question which had been asked of him. Now of the things which you wrote to me. The first of the issues is concerning marriage. And his words are probably a direct response to the question. For whatever reason, the issue of celibacy as opposed to marriage has been addressed or had been addressed. The term to touch a woman 
is a way of indicating marriage. Everybody got that? Paul is saying that there is nothing wrong with celibacy. In this, he uses the term kalon. It's an excellent thing. Instead of a word of lesser impact, which would be agathon, which means merely good. It is this terminology, which was probably borrowed word for word from the letter he received. He's just repeating it back. They asked his opinion, and he in turn has provided it in confirmation. It would be like someone asking, is the sky really blue today? The answer might be yes, it's really blue. The words, it is good for a man to not touch a woman then are his response. Question, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Answer, yes, it is so. In other words, what Paul is saying is not intended to mean that it is better to remain celibate than to be married, but not being married is an excellent thing. He will explain his reasons why as he goes on, justifying the soundness of a celibate life. From this beginning point, he will give quite a few details concerning marriage as well. Some will reflect the Lord's own words concerning the issue, and others will be his interpretation of the state of things. We know it's under the inspiration of the Spirit, though. It's in the Bible. So what he says becomes the word of the Lord. Okay? However, he will speak of the appropriateness of marriage throughout his thoughts. Thus, it confirms that he is not using this verse as a greater or lesser comparison, but rather as a confirmatory response to somebody's question. Life application context is always a necessary aspect of our Bible interpretation. If we fail to consider context, we will inevitably come to faulty conclusions concerning matters which will affect our walk with the Lord and our understanding of what is sound or unacceptable for our lives. Everybody got that? Something funny happened this morning. I'm thinking of context and these Amish and Mormon uh, um, uh, Mennonites that they come down and they visit and they're always on the key. They, you know, this time of year they fill the key and, uh, you know, their doctrine is not really in context quite often. We had to talk about that last night. Okay. They're nice people. They're very hardworking. They're quiet. They, they, you know, they are just polite. One of them this morning, I'm at 7-Eleven. I'm picking up all the cigarette butts and I'm cleaning everything. And I never would have expected this because they're always so rigid and formal. And I, he walked out and he put his drink, whatever he bought down, and he's doing something there, and he says, looks like you lost your shoes. <laughs> I said, I know, I'm looking for them right now. They're not under the mat, because I had just shaken off the mat over the... <laughs> context. Okay. I, I did not expect that in the context of him. He was an old Amish guy. I mean, he was a big guy, too. He'd been working his whole life, and he had his beard, but no mustache, and anyway, context. Yes? You're going to bring in... Uh... It is not good for man to be alone. Okay. Uh, out of this uh, verse. I have no idea. I haven't read it yet, and I haven't looked at my comments, so. You just was reading them there. Oh, okay. I did bring it up then. Is that what you, what do no, you say? I'll tell you, are you going to bring it I don't know. I haven't read it yet. Says, it's been too long. Yeah, go ahead. Read. No, no, this, it's not, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Oh, like absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. He says it's good for a man to be, not to be married. That's what, well, yeah, they, they asked the question, is it a noble thing to not marry? He's not saying that marriage is for everybody. And even Jesus said, some are eunuchs, you know, yeah. for this reason and some for that reason and blah, blah, blah. So, it, you know, it, that's not a prescriptive verse in the New Testament. It's not good for man to be alone. It's just saying that man needs to have a woman for several reasons, to have children, you know, for her to cook, for her to, uh, you know, well, you know, all the things. <laughs> okay. All right, let's go on. 7-2. Hey, listen, 
I married my rice cooker, okay? And as I said to my friends that were visiting last night for dinner, she married her dishwasher. So we get each other on, we get a good deal from each other, okay? I married my rice cooker, she married the, I was telling, the bridges came over and I was telling them last night, when we moved into that house in 1993, I walked into the kitchen, I didn't go any further. I started tearing out the dishwasher. There was one in there, that was the first thing I did. I took that thing, tore it out, tied off the uh, the water flow so it wouldn't leak all over and I took it and set it right out by the road. My dad looked at me, what are you doing? I said, I'm the dishwasher in this house. I'm not having that thing in here. So there you go. Anyway, I, she married her dishwasher. Go ahead, 7-2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. All right. Our second verse of chapter 7 shows us that Paul was certainly responding to a direct question in the previous verse. There he said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The concept of marriage is connected to touch a woman. In other words, to remain celibate is a good thing. Then he had no problem with such a lifestyle. He himself remained unmarried. However, there's also a reason for marriage instead of celibacy, which he now explains by beginning with nevertheless. His words now are set in contrast to what he just said. The idea is remaining celibate is fine, but on the other hand, and the reason is immediately given, which is because of sexual immorality. Okay? Someone who decides to remain celibate is just as likely to be tempted as he is able to refrain. If he's tempted and fails, then he will be engaged in sexual immorality because sex is confined to the bonds of marriage. Therefore, being celibate is a noble goal, but it is not the norm, and it is bound in many cases, as we've seen in churches, especially one major church, to result in sin rather than devotion to the principle for which it was intended. And so, because of the propensity for falling into sexual immorality, he says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul is indicating that being married is preferable to falling into sexual immorality. Although marriage increases problems and trials in many ways, it is a better option than engaging in illicit behavior, which thus defiles the body of Christ, as he spoke about in the previous verses we looked at in chapter 6. It is unfortunate, rather unfortunate, that some denominations within the church failed to heed these words of Paul and instead mandated that the clergy remain unmarried. This is for several important reasons. One, it binds those who are in such positions to something which is contrary to nature. Two, it leads to exactly what Paul notes today, sexual immorality. Rampant, by the way. Three, Christianity is disgraced by the actions of those who have so conducted themselves in these vile practices. And four, it's unbiblical. It's not at all biblical anywhere in scripture to mandate celibacy for the clergy. Nowhere. Once sexual, once sexual immorality sets into such an environment, it leads to greater perversion as sexual misconduct becomes entrenched in the clergy. I do not read some of the things that I see that are done in the Catholic Church. I see a lot every day. I see things in the secular world and I read articles of things that are going on in the church. And there are many things I could never, I, I don't care how perverse this world gets, I could not say what I read that priests are caught doing. I just read one yesterday out in California and what he did 
was horrifying. Don't ask me even what it was because I don't want to repeat it. Vulgar, absolutely worse than anything that I've seen anybody do outside, except something I read a while ago that happened in Germany. Literally vulgar, okay? One thing leads to another, leads to another. They have authority over the congregation. They're in a position of power. Nobody's going to question them when they should be the first people questioned. That's the first place to question is the person in the pulpit, not the last. It should be the very first, but people don't do that. They treat the guy over there like he's something special. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible would ask you. That's why they have standards. Guess what? You have no standards at all for coming into this church. Now you have standards for remaining in this church, but you can come into this church anytime you want in whatever condition you're in. There's no standard that says, well, you can't come into here, right? Once we find out you're calling yourself a brother and that you're doing those things, out you go. But there is a standard right there, and you all should know what that standard is, or at least where to find it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe, and Titus chapter 1. Let me go there really quick because I brought it up. We might as well get you the right, at least where it is. Elders and deacons, 1 Timothy chapter uh let's see here three this is a faithful saying if a man desires a position of bishop and then it goes down to deacon etc okay so that's one timothy chapter three there are other rules and guidelines in one timothy but there you go and then in uh titus i think it's chapter uh let's see here remind them to be subject or insubordinate where is this for this reason i left you it's probably chapter two yes but as for you speak the things the older men be sober blah blah, blah teaching us and uh uh, anyway, where is it? Cretans are always liars, insubordinate. Um, oh, it's in chapter 1. There it is right there. Bishop must be blameless. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Those are the requirements. So know where they are and then live by them. Make sure that the person in the pulpit of the church you're in is at least adhering to those standards, okay? And don't impose extra standards which are not in the Bible, which he shouldn't be doing on you and you should not be doing on him. Unfortunately, it goes both ways in churches and people abuse the positions above them and the people in the church abuse the positions in which they're in, So, or vice versa. Yeah, anyway, so stick to the Bible is what I'm trying to say so clumsily. Okay, we just read what, 7-2? Seven, two? Two. Okay, 2, I'm still in that. Okay, Paul is using delicate terms to speak of the marriage bed. Oh, wait a minute. I haven't finished chapter one, have I? You I haven't read two, have you? No, no you have. Okay, I'm still reading chapter on, verse one. Yeah, I did. Actually, I did too. Okay, all right. So I've been reading it and I'm completely. Uh, Paul is using. Oh, I'm in 7 3. I haven't finished my analysis of 7 2. There you go. That's me. Okay, so let me continue on with two. Once sexual immorality sets into such an environment, oh, yes, that's where I was, it leads to greater perversion as sexual misconduct becomes entrenched in the clergy. And sadly, the greater the sexual perversion is directed to those who are easily controlled and manipulated. It has become a horrifying result of the misuse of what God intended for his people. And it has so tarnished some denominations that those outside of the church view Christianity with eyes of contempt. Absolutely. Life application. God created woman for man. And it is normal and healthy for them to be married. No other sexual relations are authorized by the Bible except those of a man and a woman who are married to one another. Okay, 7-3. Okay, delicately, he said, the husband should fulfill his marital, marital duties to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, Paul is using delicate terms to speak of the marriage bed. 
He began to allude to this in the previous verse, and he will expand on it in the verses to come. After having discussed celibacy and that it was a fine and acceptable action to take, his words to those who decide rather to be married are that they should act in a manner which demonstrates that state. There is an affection that is due between a man and a woman who are united in marriage, and it goes in both directions. If one is decided against celibacy and for marriage, then that which belongs to marriage should not be denied by either spouse. His words are subdued to avoid any hint of perversity or indecency. Instead, the marriage bed remains undefiled, and he is using terms which express this. Life application. When one is married, there are expectations from the spouse which are not to be denied by the other spouse. If they are, then why would they have agreed to the marriage? But they did, and they therefore have obligations to provide the affection due to the other. Okay, go ahead. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Okay. This verse is a truth which goes back to the very creation of man. In Genesis 2.24, there you go. It says, because they are now one flesh, there is an authorized control over one another that cannot be dismissed. This verse is not to be separated from the previous verse. Paul noted the appropriateness of marriage because of what would otherwise devolve into sexual immorality. After that, he showed that a man is to give his wife due affection and the wife is to offer the same to her husband. In other words, they are not to deny the rights of the bed in marriage. To further strengthen this concept, he provides the, this verse of clarity. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Boy, they don't like that in the world today. The wife cannot force the husband to live as a celibate nor should the wife force him into even temporary celibacy. Instead, she is to offer herself to him because he possesses authority over her. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In the same manner, the husband is not to deny the wife what she desires in the bed, in the marriage bed as well. Hang on, let me make a note here. It has like or she has like authority over the body of her husband neither has a higher standing in this relationship both are to be granted the fulfillment of their needs and desires and the reason based on the previous words is obvious if either denies the other their rightful due it will more than likely end in frustration leading to divorce or adultery if to divorce, it may still be considered adultery, as will be seen in the coming verses. Whichever is the case, though, sexual immorality and thus sin is the expected result. And this sin came about from denying what is otherwise a God-granted right because of the marriage vows which were taken. Life application, marriage, and the marriage bed are not to be used as weapons between spouses. They are to be used to build a harmonious relationship which meets the needs and desires of one another. 7-5. You don't have to deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's it? Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, so it is the same in this one. I thought, boy, they cut out a bunch there. 
Based on his words of the previous verse, Paul now introduces a word of instruction to avoid problems which may arise between the married. Beginning with, do not deprive one another, his intent is to show that it is not right for a man to deprive a wife, nor for a woman to deprive a husband of their rightful due within the marriage. As one another's body belongs to the other, there's no right to deny what actually has mutual ownership. However, there may be times when there may be a mutual agreement to remain temporarily celibate. It should not occur except with consent and for a time. The only reason for one to deny the other is when it was mutually agreed and then only for a short time. The verb used here is in the aorist tense, showing that it is intended for brief periods at best, not for continuous years or some lengthy period. A span may be desired, for example, for mourning the loss of a loved one or possibly for seeking God's face for some reason. This is not without prior precedent, too. When the people were to see God's presence on Mount Sinai, they were told this in Gen uh, Exodus chapter 19. Let me take you there. Exodus chapter 19, right before what happened in Exodus 20. Yeah, that's right. The giving of the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 19, it says... So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. In like manner, Paul says that by mutual consent, a couple could abstain that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. For a higher purpose of a spiritual nature, temporary celibacy is acceptable. However, Paul understood that we are still in our frail human bodies, and it is not the norm for married couples to live in such a manner. Instead, he instructs that they are to come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Should a prolonged time of celibacy occur in a marriage, thoughts will begin to wander, temptations will begin to arise, and the flesh will make itself known once again. In such a weakened state, Satan will come to tempt even the strongest person. Many pastors and other followers of Christ have fallen because of such enticement. And this comes from a lack of self-control, as Paul says. This is the natural thing which occurs when someone is weakened through temptation. King David found this out personally, as have so many others. There was probably no initial thought in his mind that he would disobey the Lord's command. But in his weak state, he succumbed to adultery and then murder to cover it up. If this can happen to Israel's sweet psalmist who penned the words of beauty to the Lord, even in the most trying of circumstances, how certain is it that we too can fall in this manner? What was the occasion that got David to go to Bathsheba? Um, it was war, springtime. Springtime. He decided not to go. When the kings go out to battle and he decided not to. And so he didn't, he didn't have anything to do. He went up and he's looking around and he sees something he shouldn't be looking at. And yeah, it's absolutely right. Very good. Where he shouldn't have been conquered. That's right. Very well. I'm glad you remembered that. Life application. God, through Paul's hand, has given us these instructions for intimate conduct between a man and a woman who are married. If they're not adhered to, or if the man or the woman intentionally violates what he has instructed, it is sin. Thank God that he is not counting our sins against us, but it is sin. Okay? Everybody understand that? It is sin, but it's not being imputed to you. Rather, you will lose rewards and uh, you will have loss of your rewards. Be ready to perform the duties which you promised when you made the original vow of marriage to your spouse. Next verse. 
Six. Okay. okay. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Okay. This verse has caused great conflict because scholars, uh, between scholars as to exactly what Paul is speaking of. First, some translations say, as the King James Version, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. The intent of what Paul says then becomes unclear. Some have taken it that the permission is something that was granted him to say, but not as a commandment. This is not the intent at all. Rather, the word concession shows what he means much better. He is leaving the details of the lives of believers, whether they decide to remain celibate or get married, up to the individuals. However, as we will see, he is doing it with his own personal advice on this matter, and this will be seen in the coming verses. But having said that, now that it's written, it's a part of Scripture, and so we should pay attention to it, pay heed to it. The second area of conflict is exactly what Paul says is a concession. Is it from 7.1? Is it from the preceding verse? What is it that he is not commanding, but rather giving as sound instruction? The answer is clear from the text itself. Verse 7.1 said, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me. In response to the first question, he began with his instruction on celibacy versus marriage. During the entire set of verses, and for the next two to come, he is giving personal advice on the matter. He's not issued any command, but is merely responding as he believes is appropriate. When we come to verse 710, he will issue a command. At this point, the words of concession end and direct obedience to the word which is issued is expected. Until that time, his words are intended for sound contemplation of the issues of celibacy and marriage. Both are authorized by God, and so it is obvious that there are no commands concerning the issues but rather words of wisdom, which will keep the individual or married couple free from unhappiness in their chosen state. You want to be celibate? Here's how to do that properly. You want to be married? Here's how to do it properly. This is his advice at this point. Okay. Paul says, let me read what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia which is merely a descriptive thought. He's not prescribing anything there, is he? He's just describing what he's going to do. Paul is describing what will happen. Nothing is required for us, and yet it is inspired because God intended for this thought to be in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, he says what is a prescriptive verse, a command. Where was that? 5.11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's a command. Okay, do you see the difference? That is to be followed in Corinth and in all churches at all times. Obedience is expected and something is required for us. And it is inspired because God intends for us to be obedient to his directive given through Paul. The same is true with all other forms of writing in Scripture, all of them. Wisdom, poetry, history, advice and counsel, instruction, and so on. Each has a place and all are inspired. They are exactly what God wants for us to be built up and edified with. But they do not all have the same point in our lives. They are all used differently. 
life application, understanding context, and also style of biblical writing is extremely important to grasp what is being said to whom and for what purpose. Eventually, I did not get it done, so I'll have to wait probably next week or the week after that. I'm preparing something. We're going to set aside 1 Corinthians for one week, and I'm going to talk about another issue, which is harming the church. And it comes down to exactly what I just said in the last two sentences. Exactly. That is the reason why we have these problems in the church, is because of one issue and one issue alone. And if you had that issue resolved, you wouldn't have these other problems. Arching over all of this, though, is the expectation that we believe that the Bible is truly God's word. If we accept this premise, then we will properly apply the context and style to our walk with the Lord. Dismissing even one verse of scripture because we disagree with it will unravel the entire tapestry of the word. And it also demonstrates that we believe that what God says is less important than what we desire. It is idolatry. Let us carefully and tenderly handle God's precious word. Anytime you say that I'm not going to be obedient to that, you are saying what I believe is more important than what God has said. That is the end of that discussion. There is nothing more that can be said when you say, I disagree with that verse in scripture and therefore I'm going to do this thing when he says don't do it, or vice versa when he says do it and you don't do it. You are the arbiter of God's word and you believe what you have to say about that issue is more important than what God says. That's the end of that discussion. There's no more you can go beyond that. Seven. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul's words here are debated not because they're difficult to understand, but because of presuppositions in those who read what he has penned. This is true with much of the Bible. What we already believe will affect what we read and assimilate. It is difficult, but not impossible, to set our presuppositions aside. But it is always, always the right course to take. He begins with, For I wish that all men were even as myself. This is the disputed portion of the verse. Paul was unmarried, as we can glean from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Because of this, those who prefer the single celibate life will naturally tend to infer that he means that he wished all men were unmarried as he was. This, however, is not what Paul means. He is speaking of his ability to control his sexual desires, even in his unmarried state. He wished that all had the same control that he did. That is what he's speaking of. This is obviously the correct rendering for several reasons. First, marriage is a God-instituted right and was given to man for the very reason of having a partner that man could join with. Secondly, if all were celibate as he was, then there would have been one generation of Christians and then the faith would have ended. And thirdly, he has already given instructions to both married and the unmarried, and they deal with proper handling of sex, not just abstinence as the main issue. Instead of improperly engaging in sexual activity, he finishes the thought with, but each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, some have the gift of remaining unmarried and not being tempted in their celibacy. Others have the desire and urge to engage in a relationship, and so God has given them the right to such a relationship and marriage. 
Thus, even these words, one in this manner and one in that, demonstrate that he is not saying that he wished all remained unmarried, because I've read that commentary many times, but that everyone has the same grace of continuance which he himself was endowed with. That is what he is speaking of. Life application. Whether we decide to remain unmarried or to marry, we are to abstain from sexual immorality in the state that we are in. God has ordained that sex be confined, confined to a man and a woman who are married to one another. Though me, through many trials and, oh, I'm sorry, though, I was right. Though many trials and temptations may come my way, I pray for strength to remain faithful to you, O God. Grant me the ability to turn and walk away from any form of sin which lies ahead on the path I trod. Oh, that I would be faithful to your word and that I would never displease you with the life I live. Help me to bring honor and glory to you, my Lord, in this one life which you gave me, which you to me did give. Thank you for your kind hand of grace upon me, and thank you for looking after your other children as well. I know that it is a gift which is granted for all eternity, and it came through the precious blood of Jesus. I blew that. All of us, your children, all of us, Jesus. It did rhyme. I... I have the worst dyslexia on the face of the planet, especially when it comes to reading my own poetry. Seven, eight, go ahead. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Oh, is that right? You know what Chris says out at Mission Work, Chris, who comes with us, she says that she's dyslexic too. She says dyslexics are known to be highly intelligent. <laughs> we think so. I'll just go along with it, but she says that. Okay, this is a follow-up to the question levied to Paul about being celibate as opposed to getting married. He answered the question about celibacy, spoke of marriage, and has returned to both those who are unmarried and those who are married, but who are now widows. He is doing this because eventually the question would have been made, does his advice on celibacy and marriage pertain in those circumstance, circumstances too? He's presenting a logical, orderly, and complete response to their question. And so to the unmarried and to the widows, he gives guidance. He says, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. In other words, there's nothing wrong with never getting married, nor is there anything wrong with a widow remaining a widow. However, having said that, he is neither mandating this, nor is he saying that there is something wrong with getting married or getting remarried. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he will give this advice concerning younger widows. He says, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossip, idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Everything must be taken in context, and the reason behind each statement must be considered. To take any of these verses individually from Paul and to use them as a standalone text will inevitably result in bad doctrine. 
Eventually, things like Catholic doctrine, where priests are to remain unmarried, will result from such misinterpretation of scripture, and then other much greater problems will inevitably arise within the church. Life application and we are done. The Bible covers the main issues that we need for the conduct of our lives. If we properly apply it, we will be in good shape as we live our lives of holiness and purity in the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this instruction. It gets a little, uh, makes our ears a little bit red maybe in this day and age where we have complete sexual immorality in the world around us and yet in private matters of the home, it sometimes is hard to even talk about. So Lord, we are glad that you've put this in our word for our instruction, in your word for our instruction. And we're thankful that we can go to it and we can find the right answer for the questions that arise. And so Lord, I would pray that anybody that's struggling with any of these issues will know to come to this word and to check it out, to listen to commentaries on it, to think the issues through themselves. And above all, that we as a group of people would keep these things in context. Help us to maintain context in your word so that we don't get off into strange paths of doctrine. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the congregation that we're a part of, and we thank you for the many blessings that you've blessed us with in our lives. And if we're married, we certainly thank you for our husbands or our wives, depending on who we are as individuals. And I know I'm very grateful for mine. She's been a wonderful wife for almost 35 years now, and I pray for another 35 unless you come first. And Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.